This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. For weeks, our political news has centred on the fight against coronavirus. But this week, pre-COVID concerns emerged in the media to create political headaches for two party leaders, Winston Peters and Simon Bridges. But first, Monday's announcement of the eagerly anticipated move off Alert Level 4 was a major media event and the news also that this would kickstart the takeaway trade fired up the media. But the news that the media companies who are struggling were really waiting for came on Thursday with the government's first COVID crisis targeted assistance package for them. Kiwis were glued to their TVs, phones and radios, eager to hear the Prime Minister's announcement live at four o'clock this afternoon. It's become a ritual for households up and down the country to tune in and watch the daily press conferences, with today's one of the most important. Holly Caron reports. That was presenter Sam Hayes on News Hub at 6 last Monday during live coverage of the lockdown decision that afternoon, which certainly was an event for the media. Several outlets covered it live, though everyone in Holly Caron's News Hub report on that seemed to be tuned in only to News Hub coverage. It was the moment we all tuned in for. Are you ready to see the Prime Minister? Whether it was from the comfort of your sofa good afternoon. or out and about watching on your phone we are breaking into normal programming to all desperate to watch COVID-19 and listen to the Prime Minister delivering her latest and most important update. We have now some in the media disputed just how important that announcement really was, as we'll hear. But it was not for nothing that News Hub went live for four hours on that on Monday afternoon. The Umbrella Group, representing free-to-air television broadcasters, reported that far more people have been watching TV for far longer during this lockdown period, according to their latest stats. 47% of people over the age of five tuned in every single day of last week, according to Nielsen Research. It was 36% the same time last year, and that's long before, of course, COVID-19 served up a captive national audience. Now, they also said that the figures showed nearly 4 in 10 people were tuned in during the 6 to 7 p.m. news hour last week, and the biggest viewing increases right across the board were in the category HHS, or Households with Kids. Presumably, the kids were watching quite a lot themselves, as well as the parents, who were either watching with them or watching TV themselves instead of watching the kids. TVNZ also reported big spikes last week at 1pm for the Prime Minister's daily updates and for its 6pm news, with last week's audiences the highest since lockdown. And TVNZ said that nearly 1.5 million people tuned in to last Monday's Decision Day 4pm update and hundreds of thousands more would have watched on 3 or tuned in on the radio or online coverage. Now, shortly before that announcement, Sean Plunkett on the Magic Talk radio station asked the mental health expert Kyle McDonald if there was any worrying psychological element in this. Is it like (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome, do you think, a little bit? Waiting for the briefing from Ashley Bloomfield every day? (laughs) Yeah, he's had some interesting responses, hasn't he? But Sean Plunkett was one of the few commentators playing down the big announcement, and he said he was not interested in trying to predict what it was going to be. Because that would be 100% bullshit. I'm just like you, dear texter. I'm trying to make sense of a rapidly changing world and one I would rather went back to the way it was, even though I know it won't. So you can call that flip-flopping. I'm happy to wear that in these times, more than happy. And that stance chimed with some of his callers on Magic Talk. Yes, afternoon, Sean. Now, it's amazing that now the worst of it seems to be over, that all these guys are coming out of nowhere saying, oh, they got it wrong. Yeah. You know, these guys are ten a dozen, Sean. 
Well, Glynn was right there. They certainly weren't hard to come by in the media. Not for nothing did the Weekend Herald carry a timely Rod Emerson cartoon depicting Jacinda Ardern as the nun Maria, declaring that the hills are alive with the sound of Level 3 experts. But while Sean Plunkett was happy not to be one of them, the guests on his show just before the big reveal on Monday had some very firm views. We're nowhere near the 80,000 people that were going to die that made us go... So you're saying that statistical modelling that, let's be frank, scared the Prime Minister and scared the rest of us, you're saying those statistics were incorrect, incorrectly compiled? They were based on false data for a number of reasons. That was Sir Ray Avery, medical entrepreneur and an ally of the Plan B group of academics who said that our lockdown had been an overreaction and that they had been locked out of decision-making. Do you have access to put your views to the government or are you outside the circle of influence? Oh, we certainly are. There's another group um, called Plan B and they've been pretty much shut down and that's what we're actually also about freedom of speech uh, in New Zealand, that Anything that doesn't seem to agree with the, the government's particular perspective seems to, um, to get shut down. I think that's another serious um, issue in terms of freedom of speech and so on. However, Sir Ray Avery and the Plan B prescription actually had heaps of exposure in the mainstream media. Hayden Donnell looked at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday night, which you can hear back on our podcast feed, and you can read all about it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app, where you can also read Hayden's take on journalists warning people to keep a critical eye on the performance of the much-praised Director of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield. But back on Magic Talk on Monday, Sir Ray Avery was warning darkly of a looming social disaster sparked by the lockdown's economic shutdown. In Australia, I mean, I I go to the local cafe in Mount Eden and it's shut and I can't get anything. But when I'm in Sydney, um, I could go to the local restaurant and they're open right now. And when I speak with him, he says, look, um, my takings are down 50 percent, but at least I've got takeaways and people can come and have takeaway food. Mm. That option isn't on the table for the businesses in New Zealand. And that was another weird aspect of the Level 4 versus Level 3 debate that played out in our media, just how much and how often the takeaway trade got a mention. So, Juliet, the big question tonight is, when will they open? Well, mate, the green light officially for takeaways is 11.59pm on Monday night, but no-one we've spoken to today is opening quite at that minute. However, McDonald's has told us that the majority of their restaurants will be opening at... 5am on Tuesday. Yes, that's right. If you're that desperate, you can set your alarm and head to the drive through for an early breakfast. Now, KFC are announcing their plans tomorrow, but I think we're safe to assume they too will be capitalising on the fast food takeaway frenzy that seems to be overtaking the country. And Mike... National MP Judith Collins hooked the media pretty easily by describing the upcoming move to Level 3 as Level 4 with KFC. And there was plenty more in the media about the so-called takeaway frenzy, and that was still almost a full week away. But the takeaways that the media were really waiting for this past week was from the government and its package of emergency measures which were promised last week within a week. And this week, the media were not letting the government forget it. The government was expected to make an announcement on a media package last week. That's been pushed out to Wednesday or Thursday this week. That was News Hub at 6 last Tuesday. And on Wednesday, media commentator and advocate Gavin Ellis said this on RNZ's Midday Report. 
now it is a week and we've seen nothing. Uh, the, the need is urgent. There's no doubt about that. And I think last week at the select committee that was made abundantly clear to him. So he really needs to move and move fast. Almost exactly 24 hours later, though, the minister was on his feet giving press gallery reporters the details of $50 million worth of assistance for commercial media companies. This morning I spoke to a number of media chief executives to give them a heads up on this package. Uh, they were thankful, but like me, understand that this package alone will not ensure the sustainability of the sector. We will need to continue to work with them to design the second phase and, importantly, move swiftly if conditions change. The bulk of what the Minister called an adrenaline shot for the media will ease the cash flow problems of some commercial broadcasters. More than $20 million set aside to cover the cost of their transmission for six months and another $16.5 million to cover the broadcasters' contribution to the shows funded by New Zealand On Air for their channels and platforms. But there was nothing like that, though, for the struggling publishers of newspapers and online news, such as Stuff, which has no broadcasting assets but does employ more journalists than any other media company in New Zealand. Another $11 million was earmarked for what was described as specific targeted assistance to companies as and when needed. But the minister was far from specific about what those needs might be. But he was also at pains, though, to point out that this was just the first of two packages of targeted assistance for the media. So on RNZ's 9 to noon on Friday, Catherine Ryan asked Chris Farfoy what would be in the second one. It's on the table then for that second package. What are you already thinking about? Yeah, look, um, we gave a pretty big nod um, yesterday in the announcement um, to the expansion of uh, what is called the local democracy reporting um, pilot, which has been underway for the last 12 months. It's actually been administered... Uh, by Radio New Zealand. That's seen, I think, um, just under, uh, close to 10, uh, maybe a few less than that, um, regional reporters being funded uh, around the country to ensure things like um, local councils, local bodies, uh, DHBs uh, are being reported on um, because we were noticing um, that there was a lack of that accountability, uh, certainly at the local level. Uh, we think that needs to um, uh, have a real enhancement, um, um, not necessarily in the way that it's administered at the moment, but I think some heft needs to be put uh, into that and, and then discussions about how that might be able to fit uh, into um, the, the media market as it is now um, and how um, either um, new, new things can come about it, uh, from it or we can help that to support um, journalism capacity in already existing media companies. That local democracy reporting service Chris Farfoy mentioned there is a joint project set up last year which employs eight reporters at local papers around the regions where journalists are thin on the ground. It was the first time that newspaper reporters here had been paid for from the public purse and now that seems to be a sign of things to come. But it's also a sign of how messy and ad hoc public media funding had become here. That service is backed by $1 million from New Zealand On Air for one year from a fund to support innovation which no longer exists and that was set up in the first place by an advisory group that the current minister disbanded last year. Chris Farfoy went on to tell Catherine Ryan on Friday he was also closely following moves in Australia to make digital platforms like Facebook and Google pay for the journalism that they carry across the ditch. We've already got our Treasury officials talking with their counterparts across the Tasman about um, their moves uh, around Google and Facebook and advertising revenue, so we're going to have a good look at that. Um, I think having Australia and New Zealand working in tandem 
are there um, will be useful. And then there's obviously other things. Um. And while Chris Farfoy said he hadn't yet talked to officials in Australia about that, he would be meeting this week with representatives of Facebook to discuss the viability of the New Zealand media market. Will Facebook fight efforts to make them pay for New Zealand journalism here if the government tries that, or will they come to the party? Well, the man in charge of Facebook's relationships with news media in Australia and New Zealand is Andrew Hunter, who's based in Sydney and was formerly an editor-in-chief at Microsoft MSN in Australia. And in mid-2018, he told me this about Facebook's relationship with our media. We are certainly very, very willing to help uh, partners fund you know, programming or to help them um, you know, pilot products and programs that might work in Facebook, um, but we are not at this stage setting up a um, you know a massive fund to fund journalism. So, in terms of the news partnerships, um, is New Zealand really on the map for this, or are we a bit too sort of small scale in the big scheme of things? New Zealand is very much on the map. So, New Zealand is part of my territory. You know, I've been over to to Auckland not that long ago to speak to TVNZ, MediaWorks, um, New Zealand Herald. And, and Fairfax, you know, we're working with those guys um, in, in a, um, a very productive way. Facebook's Head of News Partnerships for Australia and New Zealand, Andrew Hunter, speaking to MediaWatch there back in mid-2018. This week he didn't respond to MediaWatch's request via email for more information about how Facebook might respond to New Zealand news media calls for them to pay for the content they carry here, or whether they'd be engaging with our government on that issue. This weekend, the Office of the Minister for Broadcasting and Digital Media confirmed that Chris Farfoy did have a conference call on Friday, which included Facebook's Head of Policy for Australia and New Zealand, Mia Garlick, but the Minister declined to be interviewed about that at this stage. In the meantime, under-pressure news publisher Stuff this week launched a scheme to persuade its online readers to pay up. The Stuff supporters scheme asked for an annual or monthly amount from contributors or just a one-off payment. In the light of that, I asked Stuff Chief Executive Sinead Boucher what she made of the government's rescue package this week, which eased the plight of commercial broadcasting companies, but not hers. We were, um, I think, a bit disappointed that in a package of that scale, that uh, you know, 75% of that was inaccessible to um, non-broadcast entities. Um, and of the $11 million that is available to us, um, you know, it's available to everyone. So I think it will come down to what's, what we're actually able to apply for and um, access through that um, fund and how quickly. But the minister did say, we want the spending to be effective and we want business organisations to, you know, have robust models. I mean, he might have looked at the likes of stuff or even NZME or your rivals and said, well, I'm not sure that um, spending money on them in their current state would be worth it. Yeah, I did pick up on that. And um, I hope that that is not what he intended to um, mean through that. Um, you know, while there's been an overarching sort of issue for media companies globally in the last few years, it's, it's been well documented. Um, you know, we find ourselves in this sort of pressing situation now, um, like many other businesses, because of the COVID pandemic and the response we've all had to take to it, which has sort of knocked off uh, our major source of revenue, adv- advertising, at a time when there has just never been more need or demand for the journalism. Um, so we um, really, you know, we need that um, help to get through this, you know, short term 
um, so we can keep delivering that sort of work um, and then sort of be able to pick ourselves back up. Um, that said, you know, while there is the sort of general structural issue um, for media and its business models um, that we're all grappling with, those sort of forces won't necessarily go away unless we can get some government attention on some of the things that um, are behind that as well. And you said earlier at the Epidemic Response Committee, um, you didn't think the news media that, that and the journalism industry, as you put it, could actually carry on, it wouldn't be sustainable without government help. But how far do you want them to take that? Do you, would you actually want them to go so far as to take a stake? your business or others? Yeah, look, and I certainly wasn't meaning um, that I think the government should take a stake in uh, news media. I don't think any of the companies um, in New Zealand would want to see that happen as a response to that. I think what I meant is that we would need government assistance in a, in a range of ways. Firstly, you know, there is a short-term issue that we're in where, you know, there really is a pressing need for news companies to be able to deliver journalism right now. There are still things we're going to need the government to assist with that help us uh, put news media on a more stable footing. And mostly um, that relates to, um, to trying to address some of the, I guess, the uneven playing field that exists between you know, media companies and the international companies that have made their businesses off the you know, high quality content that others create. He did say, say uh, give big hints that in the next, range of measures, that local democracy reporting service uh, could be a model that would be beefed up. That could mean New Zealand on air or some government agency paying the wages of reporters, including yours. Would you be happy with that? I think if the um, ultimate outcome is that we're able to keep employing um, local journalists, regional journalists, at scale around the country, that's a good thing. I mean, that's the primary thing that we all we all want to protect is our ability to deliver um, journalism in towns, big and small, as well as having plenty of people in the beehive and on national stories. Um, I think there is, you know, New Zealand on air has done a lot in recent years to try and um, expand its uh, its funding to non broadcast um, media stuff has certainly benefited from some of that. So the minister said, interestingly, he was looking at following Australia's lead, even the possibility of kind of joining in what the Australian regulator was trying to do to uh, get Facebook and Google to commit to providing some sort of income for journalism. Uh, Do you think that's going to be effective here? I was really encouraged to hear the minister say that. And I think if we were able to have a similar arrangement to that that the Australian Treasury has um, proposed, it would really be transformational for the news media industry here. Because those international companies, Facebook and Google in particular, um, have, have built businesses off quality content that others have created, but the creators of those, you know, often news companies like us have not seen any of that benefit. So Google's organic search is so effective because of the great content that it can surface and tell you exactly what you need to know and and point you towards reliable information. But the creators of those information uh, get none of that benefit. Um, And in fact, we, we lose out on the other side because, you know, they are able to use market dominance to, uh, to grab most of the advertising revenue in digital. But but straight Um, content though, Sinead, isn't um, a huge amount of people's Facebook feeds, is it? Some of the the estimates are. It is actually. News, news, 
Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, it probably depends on how, how the algorithm is reading your preference, but we see um, news content is a lot of people's feed. And, um, and I mean the kind of things that people are sharing, commenting on, um, that they've signed up to, to sort of uh, get, you know, alerts on. Uh, news content is a really important part of that and a significant part of what happens in social platforms. Thing it really is only fair that that's sort of recognised. Yeah, well, the minister said he would meet with uh, Facebook on Friday, Facebook representatives, to raise, as he put it, the viability of New Zealand journalism in the future. Um, we don't know exactly what was said there, um, but they've got a, an Australian-New Zealand operation based in Sydney. Uh, I've, I've interviewed uh, Andrew Hunter, their head of news partnerships for the whole region. He said he'd been here, he'd met with all the big media companies, he had good relationships with them. So has Facebook uh, ever done anything for you? Uh, no, I haven't had any meetings with Facebook here, but that's not to say that they haven't um, reached out. It's just that, you know, the sort of things that they offer or um, want to engage with are, are things that don't actually help us or contribute to us in any way. Um, you know, we as a, as a, I think, a, as a news entity and as a journalism um, company uh, stand in opposite to Facebook in a lot of ways and I think those ways it's good for us to keep them at arm's length in some ways because the type of work we produce the code of ethics that we adhere to you know the fact that we're producing journalism that's fair is accurate and balanced is at odds to the fact that Facebook is um, you know permitted uh, massacres to be live streamed uh, for data to be as people's personal data to be used and misused to you know, um, manipulate elections or um, recently, you know, the, the thing that went wildfire around social media on COVID-19 being caused by 5G. Um, those things are, are untrue and very damaging. And, you know, we need to sort of stand on uh, in opposition to that. And this week you launched the Stuff Supporters Scheme readers who aren't subscribers but to try and persuade them to contribute a bit to the the journalism they're reading um look was this a serious effort to get a reliable income stream that would actually be useful to you to fund your journalism or is this a kind of an attempt to show to the government saying look we're doing everything we can and uh, there's not much more that we can do and when you say the industry can't survive without government help this is actually a part of that drive to convince them of that yeah, oh, look, definitely the former. Um, I mean, it's something that's been in the works for us for quite a long time. And people have been really encouraged um, and pleased by the take-up of that this week. It's certainly not going to change the current position that we find ourselves in now. Um, these kind of things always take a, you know, a long time to build and they're only ever going to be part of the picture and how many people have uh, signed up either with a recurring payment or, or just, um, you know, the one-off contribution? Yeah, I don't have that sort of uh, figure to hand, but it's been, it's been a few thousand, I would say. And, um, you know, the, because of the way it's structured, there are some people um, who can pay a smaller, a small amount. That's very welcome. Some people pay um, a regular monthly um, recurring fee and some people who choose to make a, a one-off donation that's more substantial um, so, you know, it's been, a, it's been a, a good, encouraging start, but we're also aware that, you know, often for these things, it's the first flurry uh, is the easiest, um, easiest road. And now it's sort of up to us to keep, you know, producing work that people see value in um, and also, I guess, 
conveying the need for us to have that kind of support. And if you had to guess, uh, would you say in one year from now, you'll still be in business as stuff and still publishing all your main mastheads around the country as you are now? Do you, do you think you'll be a division of some joint company um, with NZME? Um, what do you think will happen? I wish I did have that kind of crystal ball. Uh, I think, you know, we will still be producing the kind of journalism that we, you know, I'm very optimistic that we're going to come out of this um, in some ways stronger, but in other ways we will have had to reshape and remodel what we do to adapt to the new world. And I, I actually think that will be true of all sorts of businesses and industries around the, um, uh, around the place. Sinead Boucher, Chief Executive of Stuff. Don't read the comments is something journalists often say to each other when their work is online because the response from the public is often harsh or even abusive and often not especially focused or even relevant. But when Simon Bridges posted a critical response on Facebook to the government's lockdown extension decision on Monday, journalists were pouring over the hundreds of critical comments that prompted from his own Facebook followers. And among them, evidently, was Susie Ferguson on RNZ's Morning Report on Tuesday. Almost 15,000 have reacted with either anger or laughter. Let me just read you a couple of the comments. I'm a proud national voter, but I think you're wrong. Amazing leadership shown by Ardern. I much prefer a bit longer in level level four to reduce the risk of going backwards later on. Another one. Simon, I'm a national supporter and I just need to take this moment to praise the way Jacinda has led us through this crazy term. I've never felt more confident of a leader. How do you think that's going? Well, there's different views online, but I can tell you, Susie, they're more than matched by the over 50,000 who personally um, came to me and signed my petition on quarantining. By the yeah, but we're talking about your Facebook I, post please, here, Susie, specifically. Please, Susie, you, you just asked me a question. And, and you're not answering it. I, I, think, I think I should get a bit of a response, please. Now, that wasn't the only question where Susie Ferguson cut Simon Bridges off mid-answer when she decided he wasn't actually answering her questions. But not only was Susie Ferguson reading plenty of the comments, she was reading a lot into them as well. What is the caucus reaction to your Facebook post? Do all MPs support you? Have they been in touch to say so? Yes. Every single one? Well, look, I don't go there... Um... Uh, uh, going through a list or some such, I talk to my caucus colleagues very... How many of them? They're not getting uneasy? Look, I think think it's a bit silly uh, with respect, Susie. Simon Bridges strenuously denied there was any plot against him and, later, his colleagues denied that anyone was running the numbers on a leadership challenge. But on Morning Report, Susie Ferguson was also interested in some other numbers. Why is it silly when we've got polls that have been leaked putting... National on 35%, I think that was the UMR one, and Curia uh, on 31%. Yeah, look, we, we can run through all of these things. I mean, I, I want to focus on what matters right now. Yeah, but these are, these, this is the situation. 31%, that's your own internal polling, well, Mr Bridges. Well, no, it's not. I don't, I don't know it's not. what you're talking about, frankly. You, you haven't seen any national party polls. And I, we, we, can, we can dance around all these things, Susie. I, I just... Do you, you have the support you know, of your deputy I've, leader, Paula Bennett? Sorry, what's, what's that? Do you have the support of your deputy leader, Paula Bennett? Yes. Now, that's interesting, as UMR supplies polling to the Labour Party and not to National, so Simon Bridges would be in no position to talk about that. 
But Susie Ferguson wasn't the only one asking Simon Bridges about challenges to his leadership last Tuesday. At the same time of the morning, Duncan Garner weighed in like this on the AM show. Um, talk of a leadership coup is coming from inside the National Party. The AM show um, understands a Mark Mitchell, Paula Bennett um, ticket or challenge um, is currently doing the numbers around the caucus. That means that the, a couple of other people are saying, um, would you support a change? Uh, the news comes um, this morning after Bridges received a bigger than usual backlash um, for a social media post criticising the government's COVID-19 leadership. I've read this a number of times. I can't find the controversy in it. I, in fact, in many ways, I'm critical that it's too moderate. But what Duncan Garner made of Simon Bridges' statement didn't really matter much. And likewise, Mike Hosking over on News Talk ZB at the same time, who awkwardly had supposed leadership challenger Mark Mitchell on as a regular guest, along with Labour's Stuart Nash, who took the first chance he got to raise the awkward rumours. Morning, Mike. Morning, Mike. Mitch. Hey, Mike, Mike, can I ask about the only other story during the rounds at the moment? Which is what? It's reported that uh, MPs Mark Mitchell and Paula Bennett are planning a leadership (laughs) coup. Can we get that confirmed or... Well, after that, Mike Hosking went on to make this point about the Facebook post that kicked off the speculation in the first place. Taking Facebook and a few whiners who you don't even know who they are anyway and then trying to drum that up into a leadership spill is crap, isn't it, Mark? It is, and you're talking about a guy that worked, a commentator that worked for um, the Labour and the Greens Party that that put up a, a speculative post last night that had no base of truth behind it and it sort of got a hold of it. And I can tell you now, Simon is completely 100% focused on doing his job. Now there, Mark Mitchell was talking about professional lobbyist and former political staffer David Cormack, who was the first to report anonymously sourced rumours on his blog. But on Tuesday morning on Twitter, he was saying there was every chance he'd actually been used by someone to unsettle Simon Bridges at an awkward time for him. Politicians' public statements via Facebook are absolutely there to be analysed by reporters and likewise the response they get from the audiences on the forum that those politicians have put them out on. But Mike Hosking was right that for many of those comments there would be no easy way of working out which were genuine sentiments and which might have been part of a political pile-on. And while he was at it, Mike Hosking dumped on the reporting of all this by other media. And it made the news. Now all I'm saying is I just read that uh, Mark Mitchell and Paula Bennett are looking at leadership options. Now, Where'd you read that? Uh, News Hub. I can send you through the link if you yeah, like. Yeah, but no, I don't bother with them. I go to proper outlet. I mean, they're, they're between them and stuff, they're, they're, they've decided this is a campaign. Many political reporters and writers condemned Simon Bridges this week for undermining lockdown plans, cutting across the mood of the nation and even failing to read the room, while others said his Facebook screed actually raised relevant issues. Perhaps everyone should be more questioning and look more carefully at the arguments rather than attack the messenger, Stuff's Martin Van Bainen said in an editorial for the Stuff Papers. But whether this was a legit leadership story or not for Simon Bridges, party politics and punditry is now back on, clearly, after a COVID crisis lull in what's supposed to be an election year. And Simon Bridges isn't the only party leader who's been feeling the media heat this past week and the speculation about possible electoral impact. And Simon Bridges wasn't the only party leader this past week feeling media heat and speculation about possible electoral impact. Now, the Serious Fraud Office. Is this going to make any difference to your vote come the election? Because the news is the Serious Fraud Office office reckons they can do Winston Peters and tie that case up by the election. So, in other words, will they lay charges, yes or no? I mean, if they lay charges, the court case won't be done before the election, obviously, but laying charges, you would have thought would be enough to finish Winston off once and for all, or is it? 
The news that the Serious Fraud Office investigation into donations to the New Zealand First Party and the New Zealand First Foundation followed more bad news for the party leader, which broke just before the 6pm TV news the night before. In other breaking news, Winston Peters has lost his High Court case over the leaking of his superannuation information. Peters wanted almost half a million dollars from five current and former top bureaucrats. He accused them of what he said was a politically motivated leak to the person, uh, to the media of his pension overpayments just weeks before the 2017 election. And News Hub reporter Lisette Raymer went on to sum up what happened in that privacy case like this. But tonight, the judge ruling that Peters failed to prove exactly who leaked that information, as well as adding that it was perfectly proper for that group of individuals to be sharing that information between themselves under the no surprises policy. So not a cent will be paid out to Winston Peters. He had been claiming $450,000. Instead, it is the taxpayer who will be forking out in this case, with the defence expected to have sitting, be sitting at around $1 million. But these legal dramas for Winston Peters and his party have also involved big tangles with the media and media freedom advocates. At one point during the revelations about donations to the New Zealand First Party, Winston Peters appeared to say live on radio that his party had played a role in photographing two journalists who were meeting a source investigating the issue. And in the course of that privacy case, which became Peters versus Bennett and others, two of the journalists who'd received the tip-off about the overpayment of superannuation were targeted by his legal team. Winston Peters' lawyer sought to get News Hub's Lloyd Burr and Tim Murphy, the co-editor of newsroom.co.nz, to hand over diaries and notes which could have compromised the source of the story. The judge eventually ruled that that wouldn't be necessary anyway, which was good in the end for media freedom and confidentiality. But arguably, there was at least as much public interest in knowing who it was who was trying to damage Winston Peters' reputation and why during an election campaign. The full judgment from Justice Venning had some further interesting details about how the story was handled by the media. It says an unknown source made anonymous calls to reporters over three days in August 2017 and also told NewsHub that Mr Peters had lied about the overpayment. Barry Soper, the political editor of News Talk ZB, was called as an expert witness by Mr Peters' legal team and he told the court that, in his opinion, all this was an attempt by Mr Peters' political opponents to damage his credibility and to try and cut out the middleman, meaning the New Zealand First Party, from politics. Now, Justice Venning said that this wasn't admissible as evidence in the end because it was speculative and lacked a proven factual basis. This week, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner said the case was a welcome and useful addition to case law on privacy, but while there was legitimate public interest in sorting out the facts of the overpayment, there was arguably an even greater interest in knowing who was seeking to damage Mr Peters politically during an election campaign. That's something several reporters in the media now know, but the public still doesn't know it, even after a six- or seven-figure sum of public money has been spent on the privacy case. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but Hayden Donnell will be back with more on Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump. And then we'll be back with more Media Watch for you at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.